0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, 1-10. through So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Beloved, it is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with the gracious Father, we uh, come this morning and seek you for your grace that we would see Jesus, uh, that we would be given eyes to see uh, his beauty, to taste and see indeed that he is good. Uh, Lord, would you uh, give us grace to see that when we fail, Jesus, your son, on our behalf, mildly prevails, for we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the alpha and omega. Amen. You know, sometimes when it comes to the Bible, uh, you get this sense that it's a big, intimidating book. You don't quite know where to begin. Uh, for, for most of us, whether we're new uh, at the Bible and just kind of figuring our way around, or whether we've been Bible readers for a long time, uh, the Bible, let's admit, it can be daunting, but it... Is dear. It is, it is precious to us. My, my love affair of the Bible began when I was a little bitty, uh, little bitty guy when I was in first grade. You know, we love show and tell, don't we? I mean, we really love show and tell. Uh, show and tell never gets old. No matter how old you get, show and tell never gets old because when you do show and tell, you show something that is precious to you and that shows the world something about your heart. I mean, that, that, that really is what show and tell is. When I was a little, little guy in first grade, I was in Sunday school at First General Baptist Church in Gallatin, Tennessee, and Mrs. Selma Love came in with a box, a gift for me. And I lifted the lid off that box and it revealed this little pocket New Testament. Little pocket New Testament presented to David Filson by Mrs. Joyce Hunt and Mrs. Selma Love, July 25th, 1971 for quarterly perfect attendance. Notice it didn't say quarterly perfect behavior, just quarterly perfect attendance. April, May, June of 71. I loved this Bible. It's got a little picture of a, of a little black-headed boy on the front, a little black-haired boy there with Jesus' arm around him, and I would pretend that that was me. I carried this Bible with me everywhere I went. I literally slept every night with this Bible like it was a teddy bear. I, I loved this Bible. Fast forward to high school, my mama got me this a little pocket New Testament and Psalms. Now, there are, and I know, and you know who you are, I mean, I'm not going to mention names, <laughs> Todd Mason, who are Bible sniffers among us who love premium Bibles, okay? This is a Cambridge uh, Publications. It's calfskin with India paper. I had this when I, was, uh, when I was a teenager and I carried it with me everywhere. I went all through high school, fit right in, my, right in my back pocket. And maybe you're here and you'd say, you know, I came to faith because someone gave me a pocket New Testament. And that's awesome. Maybe someone gave you one of those little Gideon pocket New Testaments. Um, they're convenient pocket New Testaments, but they're not complete. They're, uh, they're just not, they're not complete. Um, Maybe you say, well, wait a second, David, Uh, what's the big deal? We're the church and the church is a New Testament thing and all the good stuff's in the New Testament anyway. Well, the text that we're looking at this morning, uh, First Peter chapter two, uh, it would tell us that that we are the church, and yeah, the church is in the New Testament, but we began in the Old Testament and we grow and we flourish and we spread in the New Testament, which is exactly the way God planned it. You see, the church isn't God's plan B when his plan A, ethnic Israel, didn't turn out the way he was hoping. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6.16 that you, the church, are the Israel of, of God. Um, the church is full of, 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 of God's grace and, and it is good. And yes, it is all over the New Testament. But part of what makes it so full of, of good, the, the church, is that it is grounded in something ancient and lasting and true. And Peter is gonna show that uh, we, the church, are not God's plan B. We find our identity in the earliest pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Peter, when he's writing chapter two here, uh, opens the book of Exodus and takes his readers to Exodus chapter 19, verses four to six, where the Lord says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Egypt. Israel. In other words, Peter wanted to remind them who they are as a church, and we need that from time to time. We need to be reminded as a church, who, who are we? I mean, in some ways, this sermon could be entitled, What in the World is the Church? We need to be reminded who we are here at Christ Presbyterian Church. For for Peter's readers, they, they were taken back to the book of Exodus where the people of God had just been brought out of the bondage and sorrow of Egypt into Exodus. They were God's covenant people on their way to the promised land. Peter applies this passage to us today because Jesus, the true and greater Moses has delivered us through the waters of our baptisms and by his death and resurrection has accomplished our deliverance, our exodus from the bondage of our brokenness, the shame of our sin, the dominion of death. And he has crowned us, his new exodus people, on our way home. The whole Bible is a book about who we are as the church, making our way to our forever home in the new heaven and the new earth and what it means to extend that welcome of our great king to any and all who want to find life under his gracious reign. Uh, we're going to consider this morning the who and the welcome or the positional that leads to uh, the missional, the, the who we are, our, our position. We see it here in uh, chapter two, verses one to 10. It, it begins with the padea of the Lord. Padea is a Greek word. We get a word pedagogy from that. If any of you are teachers, you are trained in pedagogy. The word pedagogy comes from the Greek word padea. It, it is a word that, that refers to teaching or training by discipleship. In fact, the apostle Paul says to his young son in the faith, the very last things that Paul ever wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, all scripture is god-breathed or theonoustos. That's the Greek word. It means the exhalation of God, the expiration of God, the breath of God. When you hold a Bible in your lap or on your device, you are holding God's breath in your hands. All scripture is theonoustos, god-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, listen, and for training, padeon, padeon in righteousness. The man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Well, in our text this morning, Peter says that we are to long for the, the pure spiritual milk of the word. Uh, literally in the Greek, the logikon word, adalon, unadulterated, gala, milk. The unadulterated milk of the word. Did you notice that? The word logikon can be translated spiritual, the way some translations translate it, but we have to understand this word, logagon, the word logos, word, uh, in the context of what Peter has just said in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another with an earnest and pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's not the first time we've heard those words uh, from this pulpit, is it? And this word is the good news that was preached to you. But the word of the Lord, the lagu, the logos, the logos of the word remains forever. And this word, Rama, it's the, the preached or spoken word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, Peter's saying that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, both written, logos and preached or proclaimed rhema, like a baby longs for its mother's milk. You see, the, the word, the milk of the word contains all of the life giving nutrients uh, to help build up our spiritual immunity to things we struggle with like malice, the desire to hurt others, deceit, seeking to gain an advantage over others by guile or gaslighting or manipulation or lying, hypocrisy, hiding who we really are in an effort to deceive, envy, a lack of gratitude for the blessings that we uh, have uh, received uh, combined with covetousness for what others have and a resentment toward them for having it, or slander, the, the effort to take revenge or to make ourselves look better by using our words to damage the reputation of someone else. And this is often driven by a desire to take the spotlight off our own sins and shortcomings by highlighting the weaknesses of others. Now, you know, the people that that I know who love the word, just love the word, they can't get enough of the scriptures, they prioritize the Bible are the people I know who simply do not fit the mold of malicious, deceitful, gossipy hypocrites. They love the word too much to use their words to rebel against the scriptures they love. And, and as they get into the Bible, the Spirit sanctifies them and their capacities for malice and envy shrink. They lay down in the spices of scripture, as Charles Spurgeon says, and they come up smelling like them. Have you ever noticed in your own life that um, the more you want the word, that your lust begins to lose its, its luster? The desire of the milk of the word, you see, is the antidote uh, to what Paul lays out or what Peter lays out in, first, in the first chapter in 1 Peter 1.14. It's the antidote to conformity to the world. It, it, is the, it is the fuel of holiness and a reverential fear of the judgment of God in 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. The desire for the milk of the word uh, gives us a reminder that, that we are not home yet. It, it tells us who we are, that we are the church. We are a people in exile in this world in chapter 1, Verse 17. The word trains and disciples us into salvation, as Peter says here, i.e. into sanctification, growth in conformity to Christ. To to crave the word like a hungry, needy baby makes sense as we have by the regenerating, regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit tasted the sweetness of the Lord. Verse three, where Peter draws upon Psalm 34, eight through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack like no good thing. We taste and we see the Lord is good and, and we've tasted the incarnated word, Jesus Christ, and we, we desire the inscripturated word, the, the Bible. Like Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 58, would speak of the excellencies and the beauty of Jesus Christ, and he would speak of Jesus as sweet to the taste, the sweetness of Jesus. He he would describe Jesus like, it's one thing to look at a pot of honey and you can see the honey, you could even touch and feel honey, but you don't know the honey until you taste the honey. A few years ago, there was, uh, you know, here at our our own uh, David Young, he's a beekeeper, took me to his house, to his honey kitchen, he has beehives, and he he carved off a piece of honeycomb. He said, have you ever sucked honey out of a honeycomb? And I said, no, I don't think I ever have. And so he carved off a piece of honeycomb and he gave it to me. It was hot. It was hot. It had just come out of the hive. And I sucked the honey out of that honeycomb. And I just, I just dissolved into heights of palatable ecstasy. It was, so, it was so good. Do you see Jesus as sweet to the taste? Is he beautiful for you? Jonathan Edwards says of Jesus, he is the cream of all our pleasures. Who thinks of Jesus that way? He's the cream of all our pleasures. We need to be reminded of who we are. Christ Presbyterian Church, we're precious to the Lord, verse four as you come to him, proserkami in the Greek. It's not simply referring to when we first came to him, when we were saved. It is a present middle participle, present tense, ongoing as you continually come to him, daily come to Jesus in in relational intimacy. And Peter uses this word, intentionally drawing it from its usage in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, where proserkami is used of worshipers coming into the temple before the Lord. And, And Peter begins though here, not with us, but with the Lord with Christ who is precious. But the preciousness of Christ has a purpose for those of us who are in Christ. The Lord chose Israel. Her election was to serve God's mission to the nations, yet she became obsessed with the supposed exclusivity of her ethnicity. And Peter gives an allusion to Old Testament Jerusalem and the temple that was built there in chapter two, verses four and seven. He quotes Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. He speaks of the fact that the people of God there had become quite self-sufficient, confident in themselves and what they had accomplished. The the city of Zion was secure. They had the temple. They were too self-sufficient to hear the warnings of Isaiah the prophet that the temple was about to be destroyed by their enemies. In time, uh, Israel would reject the Messiah. They they would test him and determine that he had come up short of their expectations when, when Jesus came. But the father considers the son, the Messiah, as chosen, as as precious. Even though the world rejects him, Peter says that Jesus is a chosen and precious stone. Why was it that Jesus in Matthew 16 verse 18 changed Peter's name from Cephas, the Aramaic, to Petros, the Greek word for rock or stone? Why did he change Peter's name to stone? It was because Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the true rock, the precious stone of God, just as he does here in verses four to eight of 1 Peter 2. Just as a building must have its foundational cornerstone, the temple, finds its reality in Christ. That's why we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word took on flesh and eskenison in the Greek, pitched his tent among us like the tabernacle of God in the wilderness where God would come and dwell with his people as they worship. Jesus tented among us. He is the tabernacle of God in our midst. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You flip the page, chapter two of John's gospel, and Jesus goes into the temple. He finds the money changers there and he runs them out and rearranges the furniture. The religious leaders come up to Jesus. Who do you think you are acting like you own this place? And Jesus says, well, a matter of fact, I do own this place. Matter of fact, I am this place. I am the temple. All that it was meant to point to, I am the true temple. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And he said, you're out of your mind. It takes us over 40 years to build this thing. You're gonna raise it in three days. John tells us though Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, Jesus is God's temple among us. And as we're going to discover, God is so committed to temple intimacy with us that he declares of you and me that we are the temple. We are a, a temple of living stones. And I'll say more about that here in, in, in just, just a second. The, the, the readers though of Peter's letter in Rome were being persecuted. For rejecting the paganism of Rome with its sexual chaos, especially as it touched children, they were persecuted for declaring that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, O so curios! And in declaring Jesus, O so curios, they were ipso facto declaring Jesus is Lord and the emperor is not. And it got them killed. They they were being killed for their testimony of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and for their commitment to a biblical Christian sexual ethic. Why? Because their commitment to a biblical Christian sexual ethic was bad for the bottom line in Rome. Rome made a lot of money off of temple prostitution and the sexual chaos that characterized the empire. And the Christians were bad for the bottom line. They were bad for business. They they had to go. They were were persecuted. Now, uh, Peter is writing somewhere between AD 62 and 64. Uh, Paul, you'll recall, was under house arrest in Acts 28, AD 60 to 62, during which time he wrote what are called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, Paul didn't mention Peter being in Rome uh, in any of those. Neither did Peter mention Paul being in Rome in this letter. Only uh, Silvanus and Mark were with him in chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. And so we can we can deduce from that that uh, Peter writes his letter after 62, after Paul's imprisonment. But but. All of this speaks to the reality they were all facing persecution under Nero from being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and eaten alive to being impaled on stakes, covered in tar and pitch and set ablaze in order to provide the mood lighting for Nero's garden parties where guests would engage with male and female prostitutes. The shrieks of the Christians burned alive competing with the frenzied cacophony of the orgies. And let us not be unaware, beloved, that Christian persecution is a reality that our brothers and sisters the world over are facing this very day, unspeakable and horrific brutality and persecution. And and let us not be unaware that Christian persecution is already a reality in this country. You follow a Jesus who is a rock of offense. That doesn't give any of us the right to be jerks for Jesus. It's not that kind of offensive. But Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He does not need an image consultation from any of us. The true biblical Jesus is offensive. He offends my pride and self-sufficiency in yours. And when we follow him faithfully, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Beloved, ancient Rome was not the last government devilishly devoted to child sacrifice and child sexualization. We must ready ourselves, church, for the hatred for Christ that will be directed at us in the months and years ahead. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. But Peter says something astonishing here. He says that they, though rejected by the world, are in Christ, verse 5, therefore they and we are precious to our Father. And because of this, they are the true temple of God. His presence is not contained in a building on a hill, but through believers in Jesus, the temple, and God's saving, redeeming community, his presence is is there. And and, and it is spreading to every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Revelation 7, verses nine to 10, I I see there what, what I have to wonder, what might possibly be God's favorite passage in the whole Bible? back when he told Abraham that he was gonna be the father of many nations, Jew and Gentile alike, and he would make of them one family, one people, one church, one chosen race. I mean, we see it here this morning. I mean, even within myself, even within myself, there is Dutch, Irish, Scottish, English, Cherokee, and a little bit of redneck. Yet Galatians three tells me that since I'm a believer in Christ, I am Abraham's offspring. And the potential for this in our own city is breathtaking. The nations are here. We we are the nations, for crying out loud. We are the the uttermost parts of the earth. But here we have, in our own city, the the kaleidoscope of the image of God in man, the Vietnamese, the Laotians, Arabs, Cambodians, Hispanics, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese. We, We have the Bantu here. We have one of the largest Kurdish populations in the entire country here, in, in Nashville. You think this matters to our God? Can, can you imagine that the precious people of the Lord, of every tribe, tongue, and nation, of every color and stripe, the brothers and sisters awaiting us, the spiritual ethnicity, as Ed Clowney calls it, that we share together. We are a chosen race. We are an elect people, verse nine. We're living stones being added to the temple, Peter says. We watch, some of us, the what was in many ways the Christ honoring coronation of King Charles this weekend. Diane and I will be in London, Lord willing, uh, this summer where I'll be speaking there to a a group of ministers on a a biblical assessment of critical theory. You know, you go over to Europe uh, and in the UK, there are these large cathedrals, many of them all but empty. Many of them from medieval times uh, have kings and queens buried in those those temples, in those churches. They're, They're Uh, Effigies carved in cold, lifeless stone atop their crypts, but that's not you and me. The the living stones, the temple of the building of God, are biological. Human stones, you, me, soteriological, salvation, human stones purchased by Christ, that's y'all. Pneumatological, the, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, human stones made alive by the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, that's who you are ecclesiological. Human stones comprising the church, the church who will never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end, though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against a foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. It's "Catalogical stones, you and me. Human stones from the garden temple in Genesis 1 to 3 to the garden city temple in Revelation 21 to 22, destined for life together in the new heaven and new earth. We're in our resurrected, glorified bodies. We will live, work, and play to the praises of the triune God. We just need to be reminded, Christ Presbyterian Church, sometimes who we are. We're priests of the Lord, priests of presence. You are a chosen race and a royal priesthood, Peter says. The reformers spoke of the priesthood of all believers. You can pray for me, I can pray for you. We can all, listen carefully, we can all call one another to repentance with humility and then celebrate each other's repentance with high fives. As, as priests of the Lord for one another, we will find asking for and extending forgiveness when we sin against one another to be the twin graces of true spirituality. Because we are in Christ, everything we do from praying for a sister or brother's healing to painting their house, from worshiping in the sanctuary with one another to walking in the sad and shameful places of our brokenness with each other as we help each other limp toward home is in a sense an act of priestly service to our God. You are a royal priesthood, Peter says. Imagine if we would begin to see each other's preciousness and royalty and priestliness the way the Lord views each one of us. Imagine if we saw each other that way. Elders and, and church members are called to the acknowledgement of this preciousness. Look at 1 Peter 5. Look over First 1 Peter 5. Flip the page there. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, he says to the elders that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want you to know the elders of Christ Presbyterian Church are committed to this flock. We are committed to you. We're committed to y'all. We're committed, and and I'm putting myself on notice here, to return your texts and to return your phone calls and to return your emails and to meet with you and get coffee and and pray with you and and walk with you. We're committed to that. Peter goes to say, likewise, you who are younger Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Indusaste. put these clothes on. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. St. Aurelius Augustine lived from 354 to 430. He said the three most important characteristics of a believer in Christ. The three three most important, you want to write these down, because if there's only three, you want to remember them, okay? So I'm going to begin. John, I'm going to begin with the third one. Augustine says, the third most important characteristic of a believer in Christ, humilitas, humility. Number two, humilitas, humility. Number one, humility. The three most important characteristics of a believer, verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do we believe in spiritual warfare or are we too sophisticated for it? Read screw tape letters, it's just the way the devil would want it. Do we believe in spiritual warfare? Do we believe that we have an enemy? Do we believe in the demonic realm? Do we believe that Satan would love to sift us as wheat? As I said earlier in the meeting, Just as Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Jesus, Hebrews 7, 25, always lives to intercede for us. Jesus is praying for us, church. He he will not allow Satan to sift us, but Satan does prowl around like a roaring lion. Are we committed to understanding spiritual warfare? He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but please understand this is a pathetic sight because he's prowling around with a crushed head because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He's prowling around with a crushed head because the seed has crushed the serpent's head, but we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We must resist him, verse nine. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. The priesthood of all believers is most beautifully seen in the priesthood of all believers, our corporate togetherness, especially when we worship together, coming together on a Sunday morning, pointing one another to the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, John one twenty nine, and leading one another to the grace of repentance and reconciliation, saying to each other in our prayers and our preaching and our praise, our King is mercy. Jesus is our high priest who sacrificed himself for us, the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice all in one beautiful person. And Jesus is our access to God. He's so intimate and so personal and so close that we are priests ourselves beloved don't take a single Sunday for granted Sunday mornings at our church are not going through the motions they are the glorious motion of the Holy Spirit as heaven touches earth you ever leave here and somebody says what was the crowd like at church this morning what was the crowd like at church this morning. Let me tell you, every Sunday morning, the crowd is massive here. It's packed, breathtakingly large when we come to twenty three, twenty three, Why is that? Because of what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion. You think you've come to 23, 23, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Beloved, we just need to be reminded sometimes who we are at Christ Presbyterian Church, We are pure before the Lord, pure by promise. Notice the Lord doesn't say, I've been taking notes on you. And if you keep it up, keep a good track record, I'm going to declare you holy. No, the Lord promises through Isaiah in 62 verse 12, they will be called holy because he is the one setting them apart unto himself. Years ago, I was called upon to minister to a young lady who was being lured into a cult. She'd lived a hard life. She'd tried a lot of things and a lot of things had tried her. She felt dirty, she felt ashamed, but she found this cultic group here in town and they told her they could make her clean if she would simply follow their rules. Maybe you feel dirty and ashamed, you feel caught. It would take so little for any of us to be caught in our sin, to be exposed. You know the most common way the New Testament speaks of you? You're called saints, saints, hagios in the Greek, saints. It's the same word as. Hagias or Hagiadzo, I sanctify. We are the sanctified ones. And yes, sanctification is a process, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen, And it will be perfected, 1 Thessalonians 5, to 24. But though sanctification is both a process and will reach perfection, the most common way sanctification is spoken of in the New Testament is as positional, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 13, where we were set apart under the Lord, sanctified under the Lord at the moment that Christ entered our hearts, because that's what saving faith is, you know, a gracious invasion of dead hearts. You are set apart as pure and holy before the Lord. Sometimes the thing that just seems to weigh us down and hold us back in the Christian life is that we feel so defeated, so disoriented, so defined by our past and our sin struggles, a sort of spiritual fatalism sets in. You ever feel that way? I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, and I love that redemptive conjunction. It always shows up at just the right times. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That passage of Paul has been reading my mail. There's something in there for for all of us. It paints me to a man. Maybe you say, yeah, David, but I struggle with some of those sins. Some of those sins that Paul mentioned, I still struggle with. Good. Keep up the struggle. Fight the good fight. That's what saints do. They struggle well. Remembering, I'm struggling, but I am washed. I am justified. I am sanctified. I'm a sanctified struggler. That's what it means to be a Christian. In the name of Jesus, who kept himself pure for us by the power of the spirit of holiness, who makes us one holy church, Jesus, who has become for us, 1 Corinthians one thirty, wisdom from God, righteousness, redemption, sanctification. This is who you are, pure before the Lord. It was his decision, his doing, his declaration over you and about you. We're not only pure before the Lord, we're possessed by the Lord. We are the Lord's peculiar, particular possession. We are owned by the Lord. When Luke, who now towers over me, a fact of which he is eminently proud. Uh, when he was little, we would we'd play Nerf basketball in the hall, we had this Nerf hoop. We had all kinds of Nerf paraphernalia. We did a lot of damage in our house with Nerf. You wouldn't, you'd be surprised how much damage Nerf can do, right? We'd we'd play basketball in the hallways, a little Nerf hoop. And he'd reach up and he would dunk that ball. And he would say, you just got owned, man. I just owned you. The Greek here is kind of difficult. The old KJV translated as peculiar people. But what it actually means is that we are his particular possession. We are his treasured possession. Imagine how the children of Israel felt when they first heard this at the foot of the mountain. You're the fulfillment of that, you know. You're the fulfillment of that. I don't know anything more powerful, more motivating than simply being wanted. I Maybe mean, some of you received a letter from a college or university letting you know you're in, you're wanted, you're accepted. Maybe it's just somebody reaching out to you after church and saying, hey, let's go grab lunch. Come, come have lunch with us afterwards. You just feel wanted. It's so empowering uh, to know that we are wanted. Do any of you need to know that you are the treasured possession of the Lord? Do, you, do any of you have a treasured possession? Maybe like my little New Testament um, Here that I showed you a few minutes ago. We are, see here's the thing. We are created to crave. We are designed to desire. Um, And and this is because we're creating the image of a God who wants. We're creating the image of a God who desires, not because he lacks, but because he loves. He desires you, he desires me. But as Calvin says, our hearts are fabrica mydolorum. We are idol fabricators. We just pop out idols and demand that they satisfy us and give us meaning. I love the way C.S. Lewis says that if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those promises in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, you and I, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does the thought of being wanted by God, being his treasured possession of him, calling you to taste and see that he is good, does that entice you to push back the loneliness that you feel? Could it begin that you're beginning to feel your need of him even now? You say, "What, what, what do I need to bring to the table? What do I need to bring to the table if God's gonna treasure me? Bring your loneliness, bring your need, bring your sin. If you're ready to do that, it's, it's proof that he's already treasuring you, drawing you, wooing you to himself. Prepare your hearts. We're about to receive mercy. We just need to be reminded who we are, Christ Presbyterian Church, the who we are that fuels the welcome we extend, the positional that leads to the missional. Peter says here in chapter two that we are to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. I hope that's not anticlimactic to you because Peter opens up the Old Testament and takes his readers to the book of Hosea. We're in Hosea. The Lord tells Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute. They had a daughter, chapter one, verse six. The daughter's name was lo no mercy. She bore him a son in verse nine of chapter one named Lo-Ami, not mine, not my people. Yet in verse 10 of chapter one, God says that Israel one day be called children of the living God. He promises in chapter two, verse 23, and I will show her mercy I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. And so the story goes, Gomer prostitutes herself. She rejects Hosea and takes many lovers, not her own husband. Israel is personified by Gomer and so am I. She went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord, 2.13. She let herself be used and abused and winds up on the auction block. Somebody else can buy her and use her. But Hosea says in chapter three, verse two, so I bought her. He bought her back. I hope verse 10 is not anticlimactic for us. How can we not proclaim the excellence? the marvel of a husband who took us down off the auction block and fitted us for a wedding dress. Who would not marvel at such a story? Who would not marvel that the story is so very, very true? Our mission is a life-giving mission to spread the wonderment, the amazement, the marvel of such a husband as Jesus. And so we consecrate ourselves to him. When Hosea buys Gomer back, when God rescues his people, he says in chapter three, verse two, and Hosea, dwell with me, be mine. Don't give yourself to any other lover. Peter is addressing us and says the same thing in verse 11 of chapter two. He says that we are sojourners and exiles, like the Israelites in Babylon. We find ourselves tempted by the allurements and the enticements of this world of Babylon. This world's system of arrogance and self-reliance and self-sufficiency of unbelief and sin is a seductress. Only the grace of God can keep us from being swept up in her soul hollowing charms. Peter calls us to holiness as Calvin says, holiness is not a merit by which we can attain communion with God but a gift of Christ which enables us to cling to him and follow him. You see our holiness, our obedience does not merit our salvation. It manifests that we've been saved. It does not earn our salvation. It evidences that we've been saved. It does not deserve our salvation, but it demonstrates that we are indeed followers of Christ. Maybe it's slow going, (laughs) sanctification, holiness. And Calvin says we creep along the ground slowly, kind of like a turtle, right? But let's persevere knowing that we are being preserved. That's the power. We press on, but the pressure is off. As Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through the day of completion in Christ Jesus. God causes your salvation, he carries your salvation, and he promises he will complete your salvation. In a world that leaves us feeling so unwanted, grace says, you are mine, I've consecrated you to myself, and we are to extend that invitation to a watching and wondering world. When we are given over, as Peter says here, to holiness, Um, it brings vindication when we are slandered. And, and the Christians in, in Peter's day were being slandered. They were being, they were being accused of some crazy things. In fact, Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome, for the burning and the destruction of Rome. He blamed it on the Christians. Peter says, live holy lives and there will be vindication when people slander you. But it will also issue an irresistible invitation. Not only in the way that we declare and defend the word, but the way that we demonstrate and delight in the milk of the word the word that says we are so wanted, that says of you and me, that we, we give off a sweet, savory aroma. 2 Corinthians two fifteen and following, Paul says that we give off a life-giving aroma to those who are being saved, to those who feel their need of Christ, a, a beautiful, refreshing aroma. You know, when Lydia was a little bitty, remember when Frozen came out and every, Every little girl was singing what? Tell me. Let it go, let it go. I am one with the wind and stars. Yeah. She comes into the kitchen. There's more where that came from, or I'm here all day, folks. Anyway, she comes into the kitchen dressed in her Elsa costume, dressed in her Elsa costume, and she says, Hey, Daddy, I'm going to sing Let It Go for you. And so, you know, she, she sings, you know, and the, the verse is kind of subdued. You'll be the good girl you always have to be. concealed. don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. And just before she launches out into, let it go, let it go. You remember how Elsa could shoot like snow and ice out her fingertips? Lydia, as she's singing, just like this, whips out from behind her back a can of scrubbing bubbles and a can of air freshener and just, psh, let it go, let it go. I am one with the wind and psh, sky all over the kitchen. Our kitchen smells great to this day. Our kitchen smells like a freshly clean bathroom. Scrubbing bubbles everywhere. We just need to be reminded of who we are, Christ Presbyterian Church. We smell good, we give off a life-giving aroma. We need to be reminded and we do this by reminding of ourselves of who Christ is for us in the Holy Supper. And we need to do this because at the same time, The aroma of grace and holiness is life-giving. It smells like death to those who are committed to their own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and unbelief in Christ. But God loves show and tell to show something precious to him, to tell the world something about his own heart. You know, show and tell never, it never grows old. We love to show something that is precious to us because it tells the world something about our hearts. We're gonna come to the table here and God is gonna show and tell He's going to show you something precious to his heart, the body and blood of his dear son. And he's also going to show and tell. He's going to show the entire host of heaven and the innumerable angels gathered in festal gathering all around us right now, something precious to his heart, his daughters and his sons. In many ways, that's what the Lord's Supper is. God sets us forth, show and tell, to show how he takes prostitutes off the auction block and he calls us precious and is dressing us for a wedding feast. You see, this table is the rehearsal dinner for that great feast. It is God showing and telling the world about his delight over us. And so we're going to come here as the hosts and the servers come and we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good and we are going to emit the life-giving aroma of God's redeeming grace in our lives. Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to come as believers and remind ourselves of our need of Jesus and participate in our need of Jesus. And so if you were here and uh, you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and you're in fellowship with a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, this table is for you. It is not the table of Christ Presbyterian Church. It's not the table of the PCA. It is the Lord's table for the Lord's people. And so this table is, is for you so that you can come and feel your need of him. If you're here this morning, you say, you know, David, I don't know that I would call myself a follower of Christ. I don't know that I would identify as a, as a, as a Christian. We're thrilled that you're here. Uh, the opportunity before you is not to take the bread and the wine, but, but to take this opportunity to consider who Jesus is. You can read the prayers that are in the backs of the Bible that are in the pew racks in front of you, or, or you can reach out to someone around you and um, ask them to tell you, their story. They would love to hear your story, and they would love, above all, to tell you the old, old story of Jesus. But if you are here, and you know that you desperately need him, this, this table is, is for you. Would you pray with me, gracious Father? We would ask now, in the name of Jesus, that you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and do something extraordinary in us by your Spirit. Grow us, strengthen us, help us to believe the gospel just a little bit more. For we ask it in his precious name.
1: Amen.